Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Almighty Heavenly Father, the God who is knowable, who speaks to us and would enter into relationship with us, we pray now that you would speak by your spirit. We pray you would speak to us through your word, challenge our hearts, change us that we might know you better. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, one of the questions I'm often asked in uh, the work I do that I was able to share a bit um, of just before is when I speak about the Christian unions um, across the country and UCCF, which is the, the national family of Christian unions, um, people often ask me, but Lewis, what, what exactly is a Christian union? What, what do Christian unions do? And one of the ways we like to describe them um, it's a bit like this. We say students, at Christian unions, are, they're a bit like mission teams. They're groups of students who love Jesus, who gather together on campus to share the gospel with their friends. They're teams, missionary teams, if you like, sent out by the wider church into that, that environment, the university environment, to speak and live the gospel to their peers. And so like any team, any group of people... Uh, motivating them, putting something in, is key to achieving the aim which the team is for. What you fuel the team with, if you like, affects how effective the output will be. I remember as a ministry trainee years ago here at Forward, uh, learning this lesson that putting in the right fuel is essential as I drove a minibus of students to Word Alive. Um, we, we ran out of um, fuel, or the dial was getting low, um, and I rang the office um, to find out what type of fuel needed to go in. Now, I was confidently told by an anonymous member of staff, um, let's just call him Gareth, for argument's sake, <laughs> that the minibus definitely ran on unleaded petrol. At least, that's what he always put in. And yet I found myself, um, but half an hour later, marooned in the wilds of Lincolnshire with an overheated minibus and a group of tired and slightly frustrated students. Um, What fuel you put in affects how effective your output will be. It turned out, while it was possible to go a certain distance on the wrong fuel, it's not a long-term solution, isn't it? In my experience, I don't know about you, working with students, but also just as a Christian thinking about mission, evangelism, sharing the gospel with people. I found that that's true when it comes to motivating myself to be involved with mission. Lots of motivations, lots of things that might get me excited about mission in the short term, sometimes don't help me go the distance, as it were. Let me share a few of them with you. When I was growing up, I was brought up in a Christian family and I went to church And uh, the main opportunities, I guess, I had to share Jesus were with my peer group, with my friends at school. And if I'm honest, I think when it came to evangelism, which absolutely terrified me, when it came to mission with my friends at school, quite honestly, I felt obliged to talk about Jesus. Maybe you've heard a similar form of this kind of reasoning. Well-meaning Christians might say to me, just look at everything Jesus has done for you. Just look at everything you've been given in the gospel. Can't you at least endure a bit of ribbing from your mates at school by inviting them to church? 
Can't you at least give up a bit of your summer for Jesus? Look what he's done for you. Or it might come in a slightly different form. Um, People might say, aren't you grateful for what God has done for you? Aren't you so grateful that you want to tell other people about it? Which I thought was a bit of an unfair question because you can't say no to that question, can you? No, I'm not grateful. And yet, in my experience, gratefulness doesn't always translate directly into evangelistic zeal, into having a missionary heart. I was very grateful, but I was petrified of telling my friends about Jesus. At a university, I started asking myself this question. Lewis, don't you really believe that people are going to hell without Jesus? Don't you love people enough to warn them? And if I'm honest, at university, that sounded like a pretty good reason to tell people about Jesus. And then a few years ago, um, I was working with UCCF as a staff worker um, up in Newcastle. And um, I was meeting with the missionary um, chair of the, the committee. So that's a a group of students within the CU who would organise a mission week, which was a, a, week long, um, a week of events that was particularly intense evangelistic activity. And we were talking about how are we going to motivate the Christian Union to get behind the mission. And he went straight to the end of Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples. And he said, well, it's simple, isn't it, Lewis? It's a command. Mission is a matter of obedience. We go because Jesus tells us to go. Now, kind of just reflecting on all those motivations, I guess, all that different fuel you can put in the tank to get excited about mission and mission without borders. I think it's interesting that when you look at Psalm 96, which we had read, we see, I think, a much fuller, and I hope we'll see, a much more liberating and long-distance exhortation to be involved with mission, whoever we are, whatever we're doing, at whatever stage of life we're at. The Psalms are great, aren't they? They're they're kind of like um, the jukebox for God's people, I like to think. They're the songs that God's people would have sung at various points in their life to teach themselves great theology, to remind themselves of who they were and what God has done. And Psalm 96 is, I think, a psalm about mission. It's a psalm of the theology of mission, mission without borders and what that means. So look down at what we had read, follow along with me, Psalm 96. It starts with the psalmist saying, there is something brilliant to be expressed about God. Verses 1 to 3. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. In this psalm, the whole earth, it seems, is being called to praise and sing about something. And that something is how great God is. Verse 2, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Tell among the nations what he's done. His marvellous works to all peoples. This psalm is is a call to worship, but it's a call, interestingly, isn't it, that goes out from the whole world. The psalmist is saying, the whole earth should be joyfully celebrating what God is like. And what he's done. And the whole earth should be joyfully celebrating it so that the whole earth, the nations, can hear it. I think Psalm 96 is a a wonderfully refreshing reminder of what we mean when we talk about mission. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word. People playing guitars, singing in the jungle. Maybe you think of evangelism, particularly 
Mission, it seems, according to Psalm 96, is making much of the name of the Lord. Everywhere. Among all peoples. Across all borders. Mission is singing and declaring and expressing God's glory. And then the psalm goes on to say why this activity... This mission without borders is such a fitting thing for all of God's people to be involved with. And so we're going to look just at at three reasons. God should be glorified by his people to all people. Firstly, verses four to six, simply because of who he is. Simply because of who he is. Look at verse four, um, starts with a four. The first reason why God should be joyfully celebrated by everyone is... For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. The psalmist is saying the reason why God should be spoken about and sung of by his people, and the reason the nations should listen, is quite simply because God is brilliant. That's who he is. And things that are brilliant, we know, don't we, from everyday life, are worth praising. The great uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, Christian preacher and writer, once wrote this. God is distinguished from all other things, chiefly because of his... Now, I wonder how you might finish that sentence. What would you say distinguishes God from all other things? Power, might, grace, goodness... Edward said, he is chiefly distinguished from other things because of his beauty. That he alone is ultimately outstandingly beautiful, glorious. And so the psalmist, it seems, makes this contrast, doesn't he, with what God is actually like and what people are are currently giving their worship to. The contrast is with the God of the universe and the gods of the nations, verse 5 who the psalmist says are worthless idols. I don't know if you you notice, as we look around our world and our own little worlds, I guess the spheres we operate in, our friends, our peers, our work colleagues, our families, the problem, it seems to me anyway, is not that there is a lack of praise and worship going around. Do you ever notice that? Everyone is full of praise and worship. It's how we're wired, isn't it? It seems fundamental to who we are. Everyone is always giving their praise and their adoration, their honour, to the thing they think is worth praising. So we praise and fear, don't we, the things we esteem to be so good that we think they can satisfy our needs and deliver on all the expectations we have in life. Think about some of the things that we, we praise and value. Money, relationships, success, Power, popularity, other people's opinions. It seems to be the nature of what it means to be human, doesn't it? To be human is to be a worshipper. To have that wonderful capacity to set our affections on something that we esteem to be beautiful. And the psalmist points out that really there are only two options for us as people. To worship worthless idols, who the psalmist says, doesn't he, are nothing. That that word idol, it literally means a non-god. Or, verse 5, we can worship the God. The God who made the heavens. The God who actually did something. 
the God of splendour and majesty, of strength and beauty. It's a wonderful theme that, um, if you've ever read any John Piper, he picks up again and again. It's kind of his mantra, and I guess as mantras go, it's not a bad one to have. He says this, The reason mission is demanded by God, by God's people is not God's failure to show his glory. It is man's failure to see and savour God's glory. Mission doesn't take the glory of God to people who have never seen it. The heavens tell of it. The law is written on their hearts. Revelation is not the problem. The problem is they are not worshipping him for his glory. John Piper's point is this. God really is brilliant, beautiful, majestic, splendid. So, people who know it, people who believe it, should say it. And people who don't yet believe it should be called to see it so they can appreciate it too. God should be glorified by his people to all people simply because, firstly, he is the great, beautiful, splendid, majestic God of the universe. Which I think straight away, think about this idea of mission without borders and what might motivate us to be involved with it. It's so liberating, isn't it? Do we see, mission is not doing God a favour because he's done something for us. It's not becoming his publicity team because he can't make himself known. No, it flows from an understanding of the beauty, the majesty of who God really is. And it's actually a natural outflow of who we are as people who've come to know him. Um, My brother and I were raised as Liverpool fans, even though we didn't live anywhere near Liverpool, because my uncle was a Liverpool fan. And it was sort of just after the 80s when Liverpool were actually a fairly good team. Um, And I remember he took us to see a match at Anfield um, when we were quite young. But unfortunately, he hadn't managed to get us tickets in the Liverpool stand. Um, We were in the the travelling supporter stand. Um, uh, We were playing West Ham, I remember. And he said to us, "Just, just be aware that not everyone who's standing around us might be sympathetic to your leanings in the outcome of this football match. And um, it was all going quite well. Um, we, uh, we went 1-0 down in the first half, and everyone around us seemed very pleased. Uh, my brother and I sort of just uh, hung our heads slightly. And in the second half, someone was brought down in the box, and the referee pointed at the spot and said, penalty. And at that moment, the stand we were in went deathly silent, Apart from my brother, (laughs) who raised his hands and shouted, Yes! Do you see what he was doing? He didn't feel obliged to cheer. He didn't do it out of a sense of guilt. He didn't do it because he thought he owed it to the players. Despite the hostility of the situation, you might say. It was simply a declaration of who he thought was great, who he esteemed to be praiseworthy in a situation where other people were giving their praise to other things. The truth is, the world around us, the psalmist is saying, is deceived. The world around us has willfully pulled the wool over our eyes. And Mission Without Borders is driven by an understanding of the character and works of God and that he is actually the only God who acts, that he is the only God who is mighty and glorious and beautiful and praiseworthy, and that people are worshipping gods that are no gods at all. God should be glorified by his people to all people, 
Firstly, because of who he is. But secondly, God should be glorified by his people to all people. Look down at verses 7 to 10. Because he can be known. See, if you look at verses 7 to 10, the psalmist kind of changes tack. He moves from addressing God's people and creation to addressing the nations directly. So what does he say? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Having appealed to the the whole creation and and appealed to the creation to declare who God is and what he's done, the call now comes from the psalmist to call the nations to join in in ascribing God glory. I think we can sometimes get a a bit confused about what it means to to give God glory or what his his glory is. Because if we're honest, in our culture, glory is not always a, a positive term, is it? We talk about people being glory seekers, meaning that they want attention. And so we can be, if we're not careful, we can tend to think when it comes to God, his glory can mean simply his kind of brightness or his need for attention, simply his fame. And the Bible talks in, in some ways about things that are along those lines, but it's not like he's the God of electricity, that he glows. The Hebrew word for glory here means beauty. It means substance. And so verse 8 is an invitation to give God the glory which is due his name. What's his name? Well, the psalmist's been using it, hasn't he? Capital letters, L-O-R-D. The Lord, Yahweh. This is God's personal name. The expression of his character. The name he gave to Israel. That he is the promise-keeping, the covenant-making, the life-giving, the relational God who wants to know people. So this, this isn't simply an invitation to the nations to kind of concede that God is God. That he's big and powerful. You know, like the way you kind of grudgingly admit that someone else is right when you've lost an argument. No, this is an invitation to give God the glory due his name. To know the substance of his character. To know what he's really like. Which is why, verses 8 to 9, it's followed immediately, did you notice? By an invitation. And the invitation is to come into his courts. To come into his presence. To worship him, to tremble before him, to know him. The glory of God's name, it's not some inanimate shining quality. It is the beauty of his very character, which is that he is a God who is knowable, that he's personal, and that he invites people to come into his presence. In the student world... um, often at these mission weeks that we're talking about. I was speaking at one last week down in Guildford. And one of the things we do is we run lunch bars, which is an opportunity to, um, for a speaker to um, address a particular question that Christ- people might have about Christianity and then take questions on it. And in the question time, and I had this last week, particularly as I was chatting with loads of students who'd come along um, and wanted to find out about what Christians believe, it was so common to hear people say, well, I, I just don't believe in God. That's the first thing they'd say. And so my temptation would always be to launch into reasons why you should believe in God, reasons why he's there, evidence we have, look at the person of Jesus, all those kind of things, which are great things to do, don't get me wrong. 
But a friend of mine who speaks uh, regularly at university missions and events and evangelistic things like that, he told me that when, he's, when he, someone makes that statement, his first question is always this. Which God don't you believe in? The God that you are convinced isn't there. What's he like? Are you imagining the kind of granddad God? You know what I mean? That, that he's sort of up there in the heavens, sitting in his rocking chair, smiling at us. Or do you imagine God to be the kind of cosmic Santa Claus God? Watching to see if people have been naughty or nice. Dishing out presents accordingly. Do you know that the God of the Bible is a God who is personal? He's nothing like those gods you might imagine. Who wants to believe in those? They sound rubbish. The God of the Bible is knowable, he's loving, and he wants to welcome people into his courts. So I think we see something really striking here. The psalmist who's writing Psalm 96, he has a passion for God's glory, for his reputation. But not just so he can be acknowledged by people, so that he can be known by people. And I think this, again, is an incredibly liberating motivation for mission. Because it means, as I was sharing earlier, we don't have to choose between what's good for God's glory in mission and what's good for people It's not that we could either be motivated by a passion to see God honoured or a compassion for people to be saved. Because those two things go bang together, don't they? Joining in giving God glory, the glory due his name, knowing him as the God who is knowable, is the best thing for all people. It is the thing the nations should be doing for God's reputation, but also for their satisfaction. That's what they were created for. That's what we were created for. I think this is so key, and it's such a helpful reminder for me, I know. To worship an idol is an affront to God's glory. But it's also an affront to our humanity. It's actually to become less than we were created to be. So again, another writer puts it like this. It's with our mutiny against God and his glory that our eternal misery comes. Everything that decreases God's reputation in the world increases man's suffering in the world. Because knowing God as God, giving him the glory due his name, coming into his courts, is the greatest end of any creature. It's really helpful, I find, um, when I'm chatting with students and just in my own life, seeking to share the gospel with people. Just to be reminded... Fear of of judgment, fear of hell as some kind of abstract concept doesn't actually save anyone. You can scare people away from hell, but you cannot scare them into heaven. Because people need to realize in the gospel, what we get is God himself. Come to us. Jesus is, he's not just the means to salvation, is he? He's the object of salvation. Which means mission is not simply about warning people, is it? It is also about wooing people, showing them what God is like, ascribing to to God the glory due his name, offering them the chance to come into his courts and tremble before him. And it also means that mission without borders should be characterised 
by showing people in the things we say, but also in, in the way we say them and the things we do, showing them what God is really like. We, we heard about it from Helen, didn't we? Modelling the gospel as well as sharing it verbally. Um, I was reminded of this last week, again, this mission I was speaking at in Guildford. Um, they put on a meal with a message on the Thursday evening. And um, they asked me to come and give an evangelistic talk in, in two halves. And I thought I'd speak on the parable of the great banquet. thought it seemed very fitting. And they realised on the day of the, the meal with the message that they, they vastly over-catered um, for the number of people they could fit in the room, which was quite a few. And so there wasn't simply a choice of three starters, a main, and three different desserts. You could literally have one of everything. It was a great meal, seven courses. And I was so impressed with the event because not only was it a chance to explain what God is like, we had testimonies as well, people sharing how they'd become Christians as students. But it was a chance to model to them what God is like. To demonstrate it, that that God is a God who invites people to a banquet, welcomes them into his courts. It was a chance to embody that um, with great food and a nicely decorated hall. It's great, isn't it? The mission of God's people is not simply to state that God is there. It's to share and demonstrate what he's like, that he can be known. And having people, and more and more people from the nations, people across borders, find their satisfaction in knowing God is what brings him the most glory. That's what satisfies them. And that's what brings him glory. So we see also, I think... That mission without borders is not simply a function of God's people. It is actually to find the thing that brings us true satisfaction. It's the thing that we were made for, to revel in and declare what God is like. A few years ago, um, I was buying a Christmas present for one of my sisters. I've got two younger sisters. And so I asked the other one, um, I asked for her advice on what I should get for Jenny. And Amy, my older sister, um, she said, well, why why don't you get her a belt? We were out shopping, going past something like accessorise, I think. Why don't you buy her a belt? And I said to Amy, I said, well, that's a good idea, Amy, but I've seen her wearing a belt before. I'm pretty sure she's got one. (laughs) And my sister Amy said, well, well, yeah, she's she's got more than one, actually. But um, that doesn't mean she might not like another one. You see, for me, a belt was simply functional. It keeps your trousers up. So why do you need more than one? But Amy was saying, no, the right belt, worn by the right person, finds true meaning, (laughs) not simply in functionality, but in giving glory to the one wearing it. (laughs) Sounds silly, doesn't it? But Jeremiah chapter 13, God uses that exact illustration of his people. He says... That his people Israel are like a linen belt, which is beautiful and decorative, and which finds its true purpose, therefore, in being worn by the one who crafted it, to make him look great. He's saying in the same way, the mission of God's people is to be worn by him, so that they might bring him glory, that they might show off what he's like. He wears them boldly as a testimony that he is the God who saves, that he is the God whose very nature is relationship, and that he wants to be known. God should be glorified by his people. This is a mission without borders for all people because of who God is 
Secondly, because he's the God who can be known and wants to be known. And thirdly, the last part of the psalm, the psalm verses 10 to 13, because this is actually the direction that all creation is heading in. Uh, just in case we haven't got it yet, the psalmist says it one more time, verse 10. What does he say? Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And then he looks forward to something. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then jump down to verse 13. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. The psalmist starts to look forward to God's judgment. I think we can often regard God's judgment um, as a negative thing, or else... If we don't think it's wholly negative, we think it's, it's necessary. But what's really interesting is the psalmists always sing and praise God for the fact that he will come to judge the earth. And I think this shows us one of the reasons why. Because the psalmist points out, this is actually what the whole creation is waiting for and longing for. God's judgment, I don't think it's simply... It's not the destruction of his creation. Jesus is not going to return and screw up this world and throw it in the bin. You know, like one of those etcher sketches where it sort of goes wrong, so you just sort of shake it and then it all goes away. No, the whole world is waiting for God's judgment because it will be restoration. It will be renewal. It will be recreation and redemption. Which is why the psalmist says the creation will sing about it. The heavens themselves will be glad. It's, it's poetry, isn't it? But it's incredibly striking. The, the idea of the sea roaring a song of praise. The trees singing for joy. The fields exulting. Because God is on his way to set his reputation right. The creation, it seems, was created to and longs to sing about how wonderful God is. And Psalm 96 is saying it will it will burst into song. And so we see here as well why mission, mission without borders, is actually incredibly urgent, isn't it? Because making much of God's name, the psalmist is saying, is the direction that all history is moving in. Mission is urgent, he says, because we are moving towards that day when God will act to judge the world. He will unleash this incredible song of creation celebrating his righteousness and his faithfulness, verse 13, setting the world right, establishing justice. And any part of creation that is not joining in that song, any part of creation that is not on board will be rightfully and publicly removed. Which means we need to think, don't we, what's the only part of creation that is not longing to sing out and rejoice and burst into song about who God is and what he's done. It's sinful human beings, isn't it? Anne Graham, uh, one of Billy Graham's daughters, she once reflected that we think so much of ourselves, don't we, as humanity. As we look around the world around us and, and where we think we fit in it, we feel like we're the creme de la creme. And yet she said... We are actually the one part of creation that is not doing what it should be doing. Giving glory to the God who's there. And she says this. She says, in some ways, a clam in the sea 
being a clam, doing what it was created to do, is doing a better job of showing who God is than a rebellious human who gives his glory to a worthless idol. She's saying, of the whole of creation, the human race is the part that should know this the most. And yet, we know, don't we, as we look around the world, we know it the least. And the psalmist says, God won't stand for it forever. And so as God's people, who have tasted the goodness of God, we have the chance to invite people now to recognise who God is and to enjoy him before it's too late. Chris Wright, in his excellent book on mission, um, The Mission of God, he puts it this way, mission involves inviting all the peoples of the world to hear God's music of the future and dance to it today. Mission involves inviting all the peoples of the world to hear God's music of the future and dance to it today. God should be joyfully glorified by his people because of who he is, because he can be known, and because this is the direction that all creation is moving in. And so as I kind of sum up, I I know I find this incredibly refreshing as I work with students and graduates. Firstly, to know in my own life, as well as, I guess, the mission-type work I do, that mission is not really something that any of us do for God. It's something that God does and that he is doing. And we are really simply getting on board with his direction of travel. The way his heart and the way all of creation is pointing. I heard someone recently put it like this. Mission is like a child gently, falteringly trying to follow his father's footsteps. The only question really about Mission Without Borders is how will we join in? It's Mission Without Borders because I think when we grasp this, when we see this motivation that the psalmist is giving us, we realise that there's not one part of your life that can't be affected by seeing this. Whether it is the call to go abroad or the call to stay at home, the call to give money or time or energy, the call to make God known and model him at work, at school, at uni, wherever we are. It's interesting, creation, it seems, doesn't just sit around and say, yeah, okay, God's God, I'm on board with that, but I'm sort of over here doing this other thing, thank you. No, it wants to actively contribute to proclaiming the reputation of God, the glory due his name. I know that when I hear challenges like this, I tend to think I can do my own thing in life as long as I avoid the bad stuff, the sin, the things that Christians shouldn't do. Or I think basically I I can just do what I want with my life and then decide how to fit God's plans around that. But I study this psalm and it reminds me that that is not enough to show God's glory in the world. We need to stand back, don't we, and proactively say, what can I do with who I am, the opportunities that God has given me to show what God is really like, to to give him the glory due his name? And every year, um, I'm so privileged in the work I do, Because I see relay workers um, who who spend a year with us, who've been students and have, I guess, caught some of this. And I see what they they go on to do. 
And it challenges me every time. People like the relay worker who went abroad a few years ago to serve another IFES movement, working for two, three, four years in basically a pretty unknown country, learning a language she'll never use again, living among people she didn't know, who were hard to relate to, trying to share Jesus with students. Why? Why would you do that? Well, it's because she's living to make God's name great, isn't it? Not her own. Or another graduate who finished the relay program and moved house to be part of a small church on a council estate in Liverpool. Had to take a job he never thought he would do after uni. And actually one that he admitted um, was pretty dull. In order to try and reach people living in that community. Why? Well, because he's living to make God's name great, not his own. I find it such a challenge every year. And it reminds me, living for God's glory rather than my own glory will feel costly in the short term. Because it will cut right across my sinful heart, which wants to live for my glory. But, Psalm 96 tells me it won't be costly for my humanity. Declaring who God is so that everyone can join in is the best thing we can be doing. A few years ago, again, when I was a staff worker in Newcastle, um, it was on the eve of some evangelistic events that we were going to put on. And um, we had a a meeting with the CU, and uh, it was kind of like the last chance we'd have to get the details sorted and uh, get ready. And I remember going along and uh, being, if I'm honest, really disappointed because um, I thought there was all kinds of practical things we needed to sort out, and then we needed to get an early night and all those kind of things, which I stand by, they are wise and good things to do. But we spent um, three or four hours praying and singing. And I remember sitting there as the hours ticked by, um, slightly losing the will to live. But then it occurred to me, actually, this is the best preparation this group of students could be doing for a a a week of trying to share Jesus with the campus. Because what they're doing is reminding each other of how wonderful God is. And a heart that's captured by the beauty and majesty of God is a heart that will be convinced to take the gospel across borders. When it comes to mission, the fuel we need to put in the tank is a deep knowledge of God, isn't it? We need to know him. Because it's only as we see what he's like and what he's doing, the glory of his name, who he really is, That will be driven out to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. God should be joyfully glorified by his people, to all people, because of who he is, because he's the God who can be known, and because that's the direction the whole creation is heading. And we have the privilege of getting involved and being on board. Should we bow our heads? I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, as we look around the world around us and our friends, our families, our country, the nations of the earth, we know we see everywhere places and people among whom your glory is not honoured, your holiness is not reverenced, your greatness is not admired, 
Your power is not praised. Your truth is not sought. Your wisdom is not esteemed. Your beauty is not treasured. Your goodness is not savoured. Your faithfulness not trusted. Your grace not cherished. Your presence not prized. And the person you are is not loved. But we thank you that you are the great God of all creation. Thank you that mission is your plan for the world because it's your heart for the world. And so I pray whoever we are, whatever situations we find ourselves in, and wherever we have the opportunity to take the message of Jesus across borders, please would you fire us with a desire to be making your reputation and your name great in every area of our lives, among everyone we know, in everything we do, and we pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.